around us, it seems that Christian leaders, people we never suspected are succumbing to moral failure. What are the factors that lead to such a high profile crash? Well, today I have my friend, Eric Geiger, who is a senior vice president at Lifeway Christian Resources. He leads the church resources division. He joins me to really talk candidly about seeing even some of his friends, people he's been in ministry with, succumb to moral failure. And to talk about his brand new book, which has a very provocative title, How to Ruin Your Life. In this book, David uses the example of David and his sin with Bathsheba to really walk leaders through what it looks like to yield to the temptations to make the small compromises that lead to a big failure and what repentance and forgiveness look like as well. This is a very sobering topic, uh, but one that I think is needed in the evangelical church. And so I think this will be a a conversation you'll want to pay attention to. Here's our discussion with Eric Geiger. Eric, uh, thanks for joining us. Man, I appreciate you asking me. It's fun to be here again. So uh, we're here to talk about uh, this brand new book you have coming out called uh, How to Ruin Your Life. Interesting title for a book. And so uh, I don't know that you want to be known as an expert on people ruining their lives, but uh, what was kind of the inspiration for uh, for this project? Yeah, so it's How to Ruin Your Life. And then there is a, there is a subtitle and starting over when you do. So we don't, we don't leave the book or I don't leave the book just with a ruined life. It, it actually happened from... In a, an employee meeting I gave at Lifeway, a, a talk I gave to all of um, the employees in the in the division I lead, we meet like four times a year, and there I had I really felt like I had even been disobedient to the Lord on not giving this challenge to my team. I felt compelled for probably a year to give it, and it was to challenge them in their own personal character, their own integrity, because we were seeing so many people, authors we worked with, pastors we served friends that we have in the ministry whose lives were just completely imploding. And the only reason I had not given the talk before is it felt as if someone would say, oh, he's piling on, oh, he's talking about this situation, or he's talking about that situation. And I never wanted to feel like I was, you know, subtly attacking somebody from the side without calling them out by name. And so I I, I just, every time I thought, mm, I'm not going to give this challenge this, this quarter or this, this, this time when we meet together, because I don't, I don't want um, it to f- feel like I'm attacking people that we love, people that we've served alongside. And we, and, and we had all seen people that we respect and care for deeply, their lives implode. And so I just kept holding off. And finally there was, I just, it was a point where there were so many imploded lives. I'm sure you've seen the same thing, where it's like, you know, I don't, I don't even care. I just, I really feel I have to share this message. So I just, I just preached my guts out for like 20 minutes to our to our team. It was, it was an employee meeting, so we're sharing updates and budget and all those kinds of things too. And then right after the meeting, Jennifer Lau, who leads all of the books for Lifeway, her and Trevor Wax, he oversees Bibles for Lifeway, they both said to me, Airman, that really that really needs to be a that needs to be a book. We, we've got to we've got to capture that and give that to people that we that we care for. And so it the content really is starting with the, with the life of David, Second Samuel chapter eleven, his implosion, his crumbling as a leader and as a man of God, and what led to that, what led to his crumbling. And then we do see the 
the glorious restoration. We see God's mercy and God's grace being bigger than his implosion. But obviously, we want, we want to avoid ruining our life. So it's it's centered on the story of David and Bathsheba. Yep. And, and lots of the way... I want, I want to camp out here for a second and then talk about other ways that, that we're at risk of ruining our lives. But a lot of the ways that... You know, one of the biggest ways we can see our lives shipwrecked is through marital failure, adultery, things like that. And, um, you know, if you're in the ministry long enough, like you and I have been, you look around and you see people who are our age, uh, all of a sudden you look up and you see, you know, I know for Angela and I, we've seen in the last couple of years, like three ministry couples, people that we knew who all of a sudden out of the blue, you hear that their marriages are shipwrecked because of adultery or, or something like that. And so there are a lot of lessons in David's life, right, in terms of how to avoid something like that. And so I guess you can't summarize the whole book, but if you can summarize maybe a few of the ways, a few of the things to watch for, a few things to guard to avoid something like that. Well, when you when you read the first four verses in 2 Samuel 11, there's at least three things that jump out. Isolation, he was, he was isolated. He sent, verse 1, Joab and all of his military to fight. Springtime, kings go off to war. Verse 1 says, David remains in Jerusalem. So he's isolated. Obviously, there's people around him because there's people who go and get Bathsheba before him and bring her to the palace, but he's not surrounded by people who would have held him accountable, people who would have stopped the madness. So isolation's a big one. There, there's an, an executive coach that I've had for years named Steve Graves, and he's 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 coached leaders in not-for-profits, not church ministry kind of things, but also Fortune 500-type companies. And he also leads a Bible study for a group of people that he calls the used-to-be's. So they, they used to be the CEO of this company until the affair became public, used to be the successful entrepreneur until um, the addiction just destroyed the life. And he says a common theme that he he saw in those used-to-be's is that they all boasted about their independence. They believed the lies that sometimes leaders believe, such as, man, it's lonely at the top, nobody gets me, I can't really be close to anybody. So independence for them really was the start of a head towards ruin, and you really see that, you see that in David. Obviously, we know the Christian faith is not us being strong and independent in ourselves, but that, when we attempt that, that for sure will lead towards our destruction. Then, then you also see boredom in David's, David's heart in, in that narrative. So it's the evening time, he gets up from his bed and he strolls in the roof of the palace. So as you read the narrative, you get the sense like, this is the David who used to be in caves and wake up the dawn with singing. This is the David that, in Psalm 63, this will be years later, but writes... On my bed, I remember you, God. I think about you through the watches of the night. But not this night, not the night on the roof, not in 2 Samuel 11. He's not thinking about God as he lays in his bed. He's not waking up the dawn with singing. He's strolling around the roof of the palace because he's bored. That is something I for sure have heard in leaders, ministry leaders and, and leaders in the marketplace. Eric, I'm just in a bored season. Eric, I'm, I just feel under-challenged. Eric, I'm, I'm, I'm just bored. And boredom is for sure a indicator that you're headed towards implosion because clearly you aren't you aren't looking at the Lord, you aren't fascinated with him, you're not in awe of him. And then the last thing you see in David's or the last one I mentioned in the book that you see is is pride. He finds out that she's married, 
you get the sense in verse 4 that the servant sheeplessly says to him, isn't this the wife of Uriah? And his response is, go get her. I'm the king. I can get what I want. I'm the king. I'm entitled to this. I've united the people. I brought the Ark of the Covenant back to the city of God. Look at my approval ratings. Look at all the enemies that have bowed down before us. Anything I want, I get. I asked for her. Go, go get her. So whenever we feel we're entitled to something or owed something, it's, there's a it's great indication that pride has taken root in our heart. And the scripture has taught us multiple times, pride always precedes destruction. Pride always goes before fall. So those three things are, are, are things to look for in your heart, things that I must look for in my heart. Am I isolated? Can I be confronted? Am I bored? Or am I, am I really looking at the Lord? Am I, um, am I filled with pride and, and feeling that I'm entitled to something? One of the things that it seems like, like at least with David, but, but anybody who kind of goes down a path of, of destruction, it seems like there's an inability to kind of forecast what the consequence will be, right? So in our mind, we'll minimize it or kind of, I think we can game plan what it will be. I mean, David obviously was doing that, right? And we just can't, it's that trap of just thinking like we can manage yeah. this, the the consequences. Uh, I think like Trevin Wax wrote a piece like a year or so ago on his blog, like talk about like if you're, if you're going to have an affair and then just like, forecasting what this looks like. You're going to have to drive home one day. You're going to have to go into your house. You're going to have to sit your wife down on the couch and, and confess to her what you did. You're right. going to have to look your kids in the eye. Like, think about all these things, even as you're being tempted or, or whatever right. like that. You think that, that that's kind of what happened with David, that he just didn't, he did not really fully see what the consequences would be in his life and in his family and in the country, right? Absolutely. And, and I know this not only because looking at, at David, I know looking at my own heart, when I'm not walking with the Lord, I can get just numb to my own sin, to my own foolishness. You know, there's times where I, I've gotten cold towards people, or I have, um, I've been over overly critical, or I've been ungrateful. And by God's grace, He's provided people around me to confront me. But when you look at in a short window, how how cold I can grow towards him and towards people if I'm not daily repenting. So it's the it's the numbing effect of sin, the 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 searing of the conscience, the the not walking humbly with the Lord. It's not that long before we're just gonna do really stupid stuff. Isn't there also a sense where we we kind of can get on autopilot too, where we're no longer fighting for the health of of Say, for instance, in our marriages, we're not fighting for our marriage intentionally. You kind of put them on autopilot, or we're not fighting for our integrity or our spiritual disciplines or any area of life that uh, when we're no longer fighting for it, aren't we vulnerable to uh, temptation? Absolutely. And, there, and there's great quotes on that. I mean, D.A. Carson said that you don't drift into godliness, you don't drift into obedience and drift into holiness. You have to grace driven grace driven effort. You have to fight. You have to fight for those things. So, if, if I um, just leave my own heart alone, you know, if I if I don't fight for my character and integrity and marriage and um, my own sacrifice, you know, self sacrifice, denying myself, if I'm not fighting those things, I will I will quickly grow numb, grow numb to the Lord. The, the famous John Owen quote is still. 
so epic for this, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So, you know, David stopped attacking the sin of his heart, and the sin of his heart attacked him. When you, when you, when you see um, people implode, and this is probably happening to you too, in the last several years as I've seen people who I have respect a lot and love a lot still. In my 20s, early 20s, when I was really naive as a new believer and new leader in ministry, I used to think that somebody who would fall, who would implode, would be someone who, and they didn't love Jesus like I love Jesus, or they, they didn't read the Word like I read the Word. They didn't memorize Scripture like I did, or you know, they, they weren't consumed with sharing the gospel like I was. Basically, I, I, in my pride, in my young 20s, would look at people who fell and think, well, they just weren't as serious about this as I am. Now, as an old man, I'm not old, but as 42, at 42, when I when I have seen people that I love have imploded, I have I have am totally believing that there are people who love Jesus more than I love Jesus who have fallen. People who who shared the gospel uh, more aggressively than I have, who read the Bible more fervently than I have, and it has. After seeing all the implosions, and when you, I mean, when you read David, this is a guy who wrote Psalms. This is a guy who uh, was called a man after God's own heart. This guy was called, I mean, God chose him, First Samuel um, 16, you know, this is the one I've chosen. This is, he's a man after, he's a man after my heart. Uh, the Lord did not ever say that about me in, in, in the Bible. I didn't, I've never been asked to write Psalms in the Bible. So if David can implode... I know, I know for for sure I can, and I and I've seen people who I, I mean, I've sat at restaurants with people who are no longer leading, no longer ministry, no longer married, and I watch them much more effortlessly than I've been able to, much more seamlessly than I've been able to move a conversation with a waiter to the gospel, and I've watched them make an absolute wreck of their lives, and so I know, I. I'm not writing this book or saying, um, hey, this is what happens to people who don't love Jesus. I'm saying this is what happens to really godly people who, who, love, who love the Lord. I don't know if, if, if we just um, are more aware of it than we used to be with social media and the world being smaller. With You, you can find out about anything happening anywhere today or if it's actually happening more. But you, you're probably hearing this. You are hearing people say, man, I feel like this is an epidemic. And so I don't know if it's an epidemic or we're just more aware, but it for sure feels like it's an epidemic. I, I feel the same way. Like when I was younger, I f- felt like, well, these people are not serious. But the older I get, it's like, wow, they were better than I was. Yeah. Uh, and so it seems like one of the one way to to sort of prevent a catastrophic fall is to always think that it could be you, right? To think in the back of your mind, like if I don't fight for for what's important, then that could be me. Yeah. Uh, uh, do, do, do you sense that sometimes with, like even with David, like maybe he got to the place where he didn't think he could fall? Or, or, or I mean, do, do you think that's kind of a, a place where, pe- where people get? To me, one of the saddest things about, about David's implosion is this is the guy who wrote the phrase, how the mighty have fallen, after he saw the previous king, Saul, commit suicide on the battlefield. So 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 19, and then also in verse 25, David's pinning the phrase, how the mighty have fallen. So we we use that phrase sometimes. Jim Collins wrote a, a, a business book about that. 
companies that used that went from good to great that are no longer around. He then had to write a follow-up book, How the Mighty Have Fallen. So these great companies were frail. David writes How the Mighty Have Fallen about Saul, who was a great, at some point, clearly a leader that the people wanted, uh, but he was really frail, horrible, I mean, just bad character. And then David writes that. So David watches somebody fall, writes How the Mighty Have Fallen, but the one who wrote How the Mighty Have Fallen couldn't keep himself from falling. So I, I think... He observed it, yet some kind of way moved past what he observed, and which is, I mean, it's terrifying for me. I mean, I can write a book about somebody imploding, and I can I can implode. So, I I, I believe that the really the only way to not implode is to to be constantly aware of your fragility, depend not on yourself, depend only on Him, because in our own merit, our own strength, it's it's impossible for us to to stand strong. I want to pivot to the subtitle. So we talked about how people fall or how they they wreck their lives, ruin their lives. But what is the pathway back for someone who's fallen? Uh, it, it seems like we err on two sides of this, that either we want to rush people back into position or platform, particularly in ministry. You see this a lot where it's like somebody has a catastrophic fall and we just kind of want to rush them into a, an authority position kind of using the grace and forgiveness language of, of, of the gospel. On the other side, though, it seems like th- there's an equally opposite instinct to just kind of bury people and make sure they never, you know, can come back. And so what is the pathway for someone to come back after they've wrecked their lives? Yeah, and I think, I think it's great to make a distinction between the pathway into fellowship in the church, you know, and being in community with believers, restored, and then the pathway to being in leadership, you know, so two, two different, two different conversations on the first, the first, and and really the most significant being restored into relationship with other believers, being restored into the church, that, that follows repentance. I mean, that's right. That's right. God's forgiveness is, is free and available to all. So one of the best Psalms in the Bible, it's, it's probably the, the most famous Psalm in the Bible. Well, maybe, maybe after Psalm 23, so maybe Psalm 23 would be, be perhaps one of the most famous. It's quoted by presidents and leaders all the time. But Psalm 51 is an epic psalm. And the, the prescript in that psalm, it, it's just not only an editor in your Bible that put it there, it's actually in the original Hebrew, is that this is for the choir director after Nathan the prophet confronted David after he fell with Bathsheba. So Psalm 51 is this beautiful psalm of David pleading with the Lord for the Lord to create in him a, a clean heart, to restore the joy of, of the Lord's salvation. It's a beautiful psalm. One of the things you, you don't see in the psalm is you don't see David blaming other people. He doesn't mention Bathsheba. He doesn't mention his men that went and got her. He doesn't subtly try to throw anybody else under the bus. So this is how you know he's for sure repenting. He's owning his sin completely. He's not. He's also not. Um, he's not attempting to bargain with God. Hey, I'll do this for you. I'll do this for you. He's he's coming with open hands, broken hands before the Lord. And the Lord, as Nathan told him, the Lord removed the, removed the guilt of your sin. So there's consequences. David does have consequences the rest of his life. I and mean, there's turmoil in the house of David until he dies. His son wants to assassinate him. I mean, it, it, it's, it's he has a very um, he lives with the consequences of 2 Samuel 11 for the rest of his life. But simultaneous, 
God's grace and mercy, they are bigger than David's fall. They are they are bigger than they are bigger than than his implosion. And then uh, when you read to the when you get to Matthew one, you see that even from David and Bathsheba, they are in is the lineage of Christ. So God God in His grace and in His His wonderful mercy takes this really messed up story and 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 redeems from it and offers all of his grace and all of his, his forgiveness to David. So I do think as we're seeing more and more people, or at least it feels like we're seeing more and more people implode and ruin their lives, we we, we want to learn the lessons, but we also want to be quick to offer grace and forgiveness because we know that all all of us have committed adultery towards the Lord. All of us have pursued other lovers, things other than him. And so we we want to not implode, but we want to be quick to offer forgiveness and grace and mercy and fellowship to those to those who do. It seems the hardest part of that, the hardest and yet the easiest part of that is the repentance piece, right? Because, you know, instinctively when we're confronted with our sin, I think it's natural to just kind of get defensive, have excuses or kind of have the, the if you were offended by me, apology. That's not genuine repentance. And so we kind of want to rush that process, right? So so talk about the process of, of going through repentance and feeling the weight of sin. Well, if you look at at Saul before David and then David, you really can... It's just a fascinating read when you see the prophet Samuel confront Saul, and then you see the prophet Nathan confront David, and their responses are very different. So Saul, when he's confronted by the prophet... It is a story where he doesn't kill all the Amalekites and saves the choice cattle for himself. And so when when he's confronted, he starts to make excuses. The people made, made me do it. I was afraid of them, so that's why I did this. Um, oh, I was going to offer a sacrifice to God. I was going to. That's when Samuel says to obey is better than sacrifice. So when you see Samuel confronting Saul, he's making he's making excuses. He's blaming other people. He's wanting to bargain with God. That is so different from from David's response. So after Nathan sets up David with this the killer illustration about, hey, there's a rich man, a poor man. You are the man. You are you are the one who stole from the poor man. David David says, I've sinned. I've sinned against the Lord. And that's really where we, as we read the Bible, we're like, man, this guy really is even as flawed as he is, just like we are. It was a man after God's own heart because he was quick to repent when he when he was confronted by the prophet. So. Here, here's how you know someone's not really repenting when, and you hear this all the time, I've heard this all the time, man, it's just my phase in life, I, I wish I hadn't done it, but I just had a lot of pressure at work, or um, man, I, I'm I'm struggling, I know, yes, I know I was wrong and how I talked to her or about her, but you, but you have to understand what she did to me. Whenever there's excuses, it's, it's, not, it's not full repentance. There's none of that with, with David, and so... I know even in my own heart when 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 I've lost my cool or I have not been the godly husband that I need to be or the godly father that I need to be, when I'm trying to offer God context for for why I'm doing something, it's not real real repentance. It's it's excuse making. So the, to me, the process of repentance, to answer your question, is is the stripping away of all of our excuses the stripping away of all of the the context that we think justifies our our actions or our behavior or how we feel or our heart and just the complete ownership of our sin. The beautiful thing is when when we own when we own our sin, he takes it away. And so own it, 
own your sin, and the Lord is gracious to to then take your sin away. There's a tension in in looking at a high profile fall like David's, yeah. or maybe some if you're looking around at contemporary leaders or people that you know that have fallen, and you want to learn from them. But there's also kind of a tension of I don't want to get you know as Paul says in Corinthians, uh, take take heed lest you fall. You know, don't get too cocky about it, because that could be you. How do we learn from people failing so that we don't make the same mistakes, and yet also kind of keep a soft heart so that we know that we're susceptible to that? It's really good, and that's a great question. In the the book, I I really... Someone said, hey, you need to add some more illustrations of people who have fallen, and I thought, man, by the time the book comes out, there'll be like 10 more, and that's actually true. So the book's already been written, and I mean, there's... There's fresh illustrations I could be throwing in the book now that have happened since the since it was written. That's how frequent we see implosions happen. In, in, in Titus, Paul says that to the pure, all things are pure, and but to those who who are not pure, nothing is pure. Or to those who do not believe, nothing is pure. So to the pure, watching an implosion can be pure uh, because it means I, I it can remind me of my own fragility. To someone who isn't walking with the Lord, watching an implosion is a moment of pride. I'll never be like that, even maybe sinfully rejoicing in somebody's fall. I mean, horrible, horrible to do that. A godly response to seeing people implode is to learn, but also to to weep and to care for for them, for their families. As, as we know, when, when there's um, a downfall of a leader or, or any, anybody, there are a ton of people in the, in, the, in the wake of that of that destruction. So a godly response would mean I'm going to I'm going to care for, for them, I'm going to pray for them and I'm going to I'm I'm going to learn and like you know you quoted Paul there um 1 Corinthians 10:12 if you think you're standing firm be careful you don't fall. So if you look at an implosion you're like if you look at an implosion and you walk away feeling strong <laughs> man you 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 are not depending depending on him. Looking at an implosion should cause you to walk away and feel 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 weak. That's really good, and I'm I'm glad you wrote this book because I think it does need to be written, and I think particularly for those in leadership, I think they should heed this. But even if you're not in leadership, if you're just if if you're just average uh, everyday Christian going to church, there's a lot of opportunities for for us to shipwreck our lives. So grateful that you wrote this book, and really want to encourage people to get it. We'll have links uh, in the show notes on our on our page. But uh, Eric, uh, thanks for for joining us today, and thanks for uh, for writing this book. Man, thanks for having me. It's always good. We, 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 it was kind of serious there. We didn't talk any smack about hoops, so thanks for having me. We should have talked. We should have talked NBA a little bit. Uh, your Miami Heat and my Chicago Bulls, who are rebuilding, obviously. So, Heat are number four in the East, man. They're they're kind of overachieving this year. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us, Eric. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to The Way Home Podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes. You can catch previous episodes on DanielDarling.com. The Way Home is produced by Gary Lancaster and scheduling by Marie Delph. The Way Home is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention.